Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Christopher Martin, Professor of Digital Journalism and Communication Studies at the University of Northern Iowa. Chris is the award-winning author of Framed, Labor in the Corporate Media, and has a new book out this month, No Longer Newsworthy, How the Mainstream Media Abandoned the Working Class. We spoke to Chris about why the news media stopped writing for working class readers starting in the late 1960s, the unintended political ramifications of this shift, and specific reasons why the mainstream media needs to start covering working class stories again. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Nice to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, No Longer Newsworthy, How the Mainstream Media Abandoned the Working Class. And I guess I'll start off right off the bat. Who is the working class in America? Well, I like to uh, think about the working class pretty broadly. Um, I like uh, the definition that um, uh, the economist Michael Zweig has offered um, in his books. Um, he, and he talks about the working class being made up of people who, when they go to work or act as citizens, they have comparatively little power or authority. So if you think about it that way and not not the way that sometimes we think about the working classes in terms of just education or in terms of socioeconomic status. It's pretty broad. And, and, and I would say most of us, you know, are in a situation where, you know, as citizens, when we go to work, have comparatively little power or authority. So I'm, a, you know, I'm a professor, but I belong to a labor union here at University of Northern Iowa. So I consider myself part of that. Nice, nice. Yeah, the, 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 the statistic you threw out using Michael Zweig's work was 60% of America's 163 million worker labor force has comparatively little power authority. So that's the, the working class majority. And those, those people, you know, we tend not to talk about those people as the working class in America. I mean, we, um, in fact, we don't use that term very much at all. Um, I, I talk about in the book, I mean, we tend to use middle class um, and politicians have used, you know, this kind of softer term working families. I mean, you hear that one all the time, yeah, yeah. especially from like the eighties on, but like you know, hardly anyone invokes working class, which then suggests, you know, this this sociological language of, of, of inequality and, and you know, uh, unequal power as well. Makes sense, makes sense. So, so with that in mind, tell us the backstory as to why the newspapers, the news media starting in the sixties wrote off working class readers. and made American workers basically invisible in the mainstream media? Well, all this um, research got started, um, you know, more than a decade ago. I was up in uh, Cleveland um, at, uh, at a library, and I was looking uh, through the archives of uh, a former labor reporter um, for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And he had written a story about a bus strike that had happened in the late 1950s in Cleveland. And it was, um, it was kind of fascinating to me because the, it was only like towards the very end of the article that he mentioned that there were actually some, some consumers who were disrupted by the bus strike. And it, it basically just said those people, you know, called taxis or hitched a ride or, or something else to get home. And that, and that was that. It was, um, which is very different from what I um, encountered when I wrote about labor in the 80s and 90s in a previous book. Um, that I wrote for Cornell University Press called Framed Labor in the Corporate Media. And in those cases, I, you know, and if you've lived through the 80s or 90s or, you know, into today, when there's a, a strike or a work stoppage, the, the first person reporters usually go to are consumers who are disrupted by that strike. In fact, those are the strikes or, and work stoppages that 
and lockouts that we hear most about, the ones that disrupt consumers. If that doesn't happen, it's like we don't even hear about them. So, so, so I thought like, wow, something really changed here between the 1950s and the 1980s and 90s and beyond. Um, and so, um, so that was kind of the impetus for this book. Uh, and I discovered then, since doing a lot of historical research, that in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, um, first of all, there was a lot of consolidation in the newspaper industry, and that was a leading you know, organization for news at that time. Um, and they debated this somewhat, but they decided to stop targeting a mass audience in the late 60s and early 70s, instead targeting upscale demographics. And this was a, a, a marketing decision. I don't think they really thought out what the consequences would be, but they decided to go for wealthier, better educated, middle class and upper middle class readers. Um, and you can start to see how that changes then the narratives they tell. Again, there wasn't like this you know, um, editorial um, dictum from above saying this is how you must cover this, but um, you start to see that they start covering labor um, and, and labor, certainly later labor disruptions from the point of view of those uh, upper middle class readers. And so the news organizations start to highlight their, their readership and viewership as being you know, uh, average in, above average in income, education, home ownership, uh, and they drop the, you know, the so-called average readers or working class readers, uh, they get, kind of got cut off. Um, so with, along with that, you start to see newspapers um, start new columns that focus on workplace lifestyles uh, by the late 70s and early 80s. And these are, you know, this isn't like the typical labor beat. This is for um, people uh, who uh, work in offices mostly. So it's more upscale people. So and it covers issues like what to wear to work how to deal with office romances, how to behave at office parties, which is a very different kind of beat that, that's kind of apolitical as well, that doesn't get into you know, class issues and the people's working conditions and people's compensation and safety. Um, so there's a real, so what, you know, essentially what uh, newspapers do, and it's followed by all the other media, news media, is that they really drop off working class readers. Um, and ironically, you know, we're in a situation now where newspapers are really scrambling for readership and, uh, you know, and the news industry has evolved into a very, um, you know, kind of dual, uh, dual paths for, um, for how they cover those things. And so there's a different type of uh, journalism that emerges as well. I don't even know if I'd call it journalism. It's, it's more kind of uh, propaganda on the right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so I mean, some of the statistics you, were, uh, you have in the book that only 33.4% of Americans have a bachelor's degree. And 64 million Americans make less than $15 an hour. And so the mainstream media is only catering to, as you said, this higher, higher educated or uh, individuals that are making uh, a significant amount of money compared to the average American. Uh, mm -hmm. And you had some dispiriting stories. One was the, you know, the closing uh, of Hostess Brands or, or the, they announced bankruptcy. And this, the news media was, all they could do was make jokes about Twinkies. They did, <laughs> forgot to even mention that, you know, 18,000 people, may, the jobs are on the line. It, it, it's unbelievable. And that's a classic example of that consumer approach to the news. It was really about, you know, Twinkies and, and Ho-Hos and Ding Dongs. And, and serious journalists were just kind of making jokes or, you know, uh, waxing nostalgic about, you know, that, that they weren't going to be able to eat those, you know, processed treats anymore. Um, but, yeah, it was a, it was a major um, closure in America. And so they ended up closing down Hostess. And, and the media celebrated a few years later when those brands came back, but those brands came back, you know, minus the labor unions uh, producing them uh, and with, uh, you know, just these vulture uh, financial companies that swept in and bought up the brands and were making a lot of money off of them. But there were really 
you know, thousands and thousands of really good jobs that were lost in the, in the hostess closure. Sure. I saw it in um, uh, my own hometown uh, here in the Waterloo Cedar Falls area. Um, I worked uh, uh, with a colleague at Bradley University and she had the same, you know, the same thing happening in Peoria. I mean, those were not the stories um, told in the media um, in, in nearly every case. Wow. Wow. So yeah, so this, so this shift over to just focusing on consumers and ignoring the actual workers, the actual um, labor stories. So if this is with, now that this is the case, where have America's working class ended up getting their news from? Well, this is, um, this is a, a really interesting question about the media, but also really plays into um, our politics. So, um, so imagine again, um, the, the news media cut off um, their working class readership in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, those people were really kind of set adrift um, that the news wasn't talking to them. And it's very clear. I mean, you, you can certainly perceive that, uh, you know, who the news is talking to. Uh, and I, I, I say in the book and really illustrate it through the, the ads that newspapers themselves made to advertisers. I mean, they were really, really looking for an upscale audience by, by the late 60s and into the early 70s. So the, with the working class cut adrift, no one actually talking to them, uh, they were really um, picked off uh, by uh, uh, an ascendant conservative media. Um, so um, there was, uh, you know, the rise of a right-wing media starting in the 70s, and it was long, long a dream of people on the right to have their own media. I mean, this was talked about, you know, in the, uh, in the early 70s by a number of different people, including the, the economist Milton Friedman. So what we start to see is, is someone who's actually been in the press lately um, uh, uh, taking full advantage of this. So Rupert Murdoch swoops in from Australia and later gains American citizenship so he can buy more things, but he bought the New York Post in 1976. We see the establishment of the Christian Broadcasting Network in 1977. Uh, some changes um, in the FCC with the Reagan administration, getting rid of the Fairness Doctrine, results in a very conservative talk radio almost immediately with Rush Limbaugh in 1988 and then a host of uh, people copying his approach. Uh, in the next decade, in the, the, the mid-90s, we get the Drudge Report with Matt Drudge on the new internet. Um, we get Fox News, another Rupert Murdoch project in 1996. And then in the following decade, we get things like, you know, Andrew Breitbart's Breitbart.com and another host of um, uh, imitators there as well. So what, you know, so what we see right now in this, uh, what others people have called the conservative echo chamber um, is something that wasn't a foregone conclusion. And in fact, you could imagine, you know, they might not have had a, ba a really big audience had working class people not been cut off, you know, from the, the mainstream media in the late 60s and early 70s. So they were kind of ripe for the picking. And, and I honestly have to say, this is, this is something that's really affected our politics today because now we've seen, you know, pretty much the, the complete merger of that conservative media echo chamber, Fox News, but also uh, conservative websites and conservative talk radio with the, with the, repart, with the Republican Party. And it's really, uh, and Trump himself has really kind of made the final closure uh, of that circle. I mean, they're, they're pretty much one and the same now to the point, you know, just recently where Trump actually tweets angry tweets at Fox because they dared to have Bernie Sanders on Fox News um, just recently. And like, you know, he's like, why, why would you do that to, you know, and he uses, he actually used the term we, like, like he and Fox were the same thing. I mean, that's what's happened. And, and in some ways it kind of answers the question about, um, you know, uh, that uh, a, a writer asked about what's the matter with Kansas, trying to explain like, why would working class people, you know, go over to a Republican party that doesn't really hold their interest. And part of that, the answer to that question is that the conservative media 
is very much, um, you know, talking to them, you know, and not talking to them really on, on I should mention, on economic issues, because, you know, the, that party is really a failure for the working class on economic issues, uh, but very much talking to them about uh, cultural issues, which is why the Christian media is also, you know, part of that, uh, that whole group of, of conservative echo chamber media. So, I mean, it's, yeah, you've, you've uh, tied it up very well with what's going on right now and the, the ramifications of this 40-year trend um, and what's what the, the political fallout that we've received now with uh, the past two years of the Trump administration. Um, so with that being said, what can, what can be done? What, what can mainstream news outlets do now to gain this audience back? Is there hope? <laughs> I guess that's, I mean, yeah, I've, I've, sorry, I've painted kind of a blade. No, no, it's it's reality. It's it's, it's totally reality. So, um, you know, I mean, there there are some interesting things happening. You know, as I was finishing up this book, I mean, in the just the past couple of years, there have been um, a number of um, of outlets that have actually um, where the the journalists themselves have organized their newsrooms. Um, so it, it, interesting, these these news organizations dropped in most cases the working class beat. Uh, but their news organizations themselves and the journalists that work in them, you know, kind of became victims of that that same economy. Uh, and so it's actually been interesting to see uh, or, uh, newsrooms organize, you know, including places like the, you know, the LA Times, which actually dropped, uh, you know, a number of Pulitzer Prize winning uh, writers who talked about class. Um, we've also seen um, some organizations actually, uh, and more digital organizations than uh, mainstream newspapers or, or other media um, pick up uh, with a labor or workplace beat. So we've seen like the HuffPost, uh, Bloomberg, Politico, BuzzFeed, um, ProPublica, and the Center for Public Integrity, uh, Public Integrity all add labor and workplace reporters. So that actually that's been good and they've been doing some great work uh, at those organizations. Um, Mike Elk uh, has a, a site called um, uh, Payday, which is actually really um, a, a great uh, labor site. He kind of runs that pretty independently. Um, so there, there's a lot of people, or I shouldn't say a lot, but there's more than there were um, just a decade ago uh, writing. Um, we haven't seen the, um, you know, what we call the mainstream media, kind of mainstream news organizations jump on a labor and workplace beat. And, and I think that really happens. And, and I see this I mean, what it took a 40-year cultural shift to get us to this point, and I think it may take that long to get uh, the working class back as audience uh, in a big way for mainstream media. Um, and, and what they need to do is just really talk to those people, address those people head on, like, and, and you know, in a way that says you're part of our audience, and not, it, you know, not just be addressing or hailing, uh, you know, upscale people. Um, you know, and I think if they do that, um, I think they'll slowly get that those people back. You know, but we've had you know, uh, you know, forty years of this, and we've had the the, um, the mainstream media really demonized as you know as elite media. You know, and and I suppose there is a tiny bit of grain to truth to that, and in, in the fact that they haven't been addressing you know the issues of working class people. So you know, it's at the same time I wouldn't argue that they're elite, uh, but they I think they're a little bit misguided. In terms of their audience, and there's a big, there's a big uh, element of democracy in this. So that the news media uh, should not just just be uh, thinking of citizens just as consumers and 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 hopefully upscale consumers from their for their advertisers, but they should be thinking of their entire communities, be the a city or a state or the entire country, that those citizens 
are, are its news audience. And, and the sooner the mainstream media comes back to that idea and starts thinking about their democratic function rather than just their commercial function, I think they'll be on the right path to talking to all people, including working class people, and all of us seeing ourselves as actually one group of citizens rather than these kind of, you know, separated by different levels of, you know, people uh, separated by class. Nice, nice. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I mean, the whole the whole business model, which is that the news media is catering to advertisers, you can see that the, you know, follow the money, um, that that's why they're catering to these, that's why we open up a magazine and there's a BMW ad, you know, yeah. so how can that model shift to include more of the working class? Is that even possible? Or, or is it going to, you know, it's, it's encouraging to hear, you know, HuffPost, ProPublica, and Payday. I have to check that out. Um, but you also point out, you know, the New York Times, supposedly are, you know, a journal of record. Um, they used to have five labor reporters, and now they have one. Yeah, it's um, and it's been that way, you know, for a couple decades now. Um, yeah, if you look at the, I mean, I, I suppose that was kind of a golden age in the middle of the 20th century. There were, um, you know, in excess of uh, 50 um, uh, labor reporters just um, east of the Mississippi, according to one uh, meeting of, of them uh, that was that happened uh, in Massachusetts that year. Um, so yeah, I think you know, you could argue that uh, you know, the time sh probably should have, you know, now more than ever. I mean, we're talking about class issues. We've had Occupy. We, we have discourse about the 99% and the 1%. But, but you know, we should be, we should be covering more of, uh, of what's happening with the 99% and not just what's happening, you know, and, um, you know, the, the, the Times is, is pretty good about covering uh, labor issues and they, they get some things of the big picture, but it's not covered on a regular basis, like, you know, like, like the same way you would be covering, you know, Wall Street. They cover that every day on a regular basis. We don't see that same kind of commitment from that or other news organizations, national news organizations, in, in quite the same way. I mean, there were some really, um, you know, wonderful um, magazines on the left, like In These Times, which has uh, really recommitted to even more and more labor coverage. And that it's really, those kinds of stories are, are amazing, but you, you know, you don't see them in many places past, you know, In These Times or The Nation or Mother Jones and that same kind of quality of reporting and, and getting down the trenches and getting out of New York City and covering the entire country, uh, I think is really important. I mean, if you're a national news medium, I mean, you should be covering at that level. Um, NPR, you know, which, uh, you know, which professors, you know, uh, like me like to listen to, um, does not have a labor reporter, a regular labor reporter. They did for a while, but now that person's, you know, assigned to um, covering London. Um, and they, and, and wow. from time to time, they cover uh, labor issues. But again, you know, you need a labor beat reporter or several of them to cover that well. And, and actually, to explain the, the political and economic situation that America's in today. I mean, how can we, how can we describe, I mean, so we know from the media that there are things unequal and politicians have certainly grasped that, you know, as, you know, in the past few years, I mean, it's become kind of mainstream discourse. Um, but, you know, how's that world being described to us on a regular basis by uh, the American news media? And I think, you know, the, the big uh, media, you know, down to, you know, small papers uh, in my town or, you know, the Des Moines Register in Iowa, I mean, they don't have labor reporters, they just don't cover that. And, and I, having said that, I understand that we're in kind of a crisis in terms of um, journalism. I mean, it, in terms of revenue, it's, it's difficult, but 
uh, hey, there's, there's also a message in this that, that, that a few other people have noticed as well is like, expand your audience. You know, you're not talking to the working class. Don't let just Fox News have them. I mean, they're not doing them any good economically anyway. Don't let just Rush Limbaugh have them. I mean, they're also not getting, you know, the, the honest facts about our, our world either there. So let's, you know, let's go after those people. So, um, and, and make them part of our journalism audience. I mean, I, I really appreciate journalism. I teach journalism. And I think like that's something we should seriously consider to not only resurrect journalism on the financial end, but, but doing the job that journalism should be doing and just telling us what our world's about. Well, that's encouraging. It, yeah, I mean, as you said, it's, it's, it's you know, 40 years of momentum. And the, but the, the, I think the Trump presidency was definitely a huge wake up call. And I hope more and more journalists read your new book. <laughs> they need to. Um, uh, as you said, there's a huge audience. Why, why should the mainstream media let Fox News or the New York Post or whatever uh, or, or um, talk radio just cater to that audience? There's, 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 uh, if we, again, want to follow the money, there's, there's large uh, millions of people that they're, they're missing in their, the mainstream media. Company. Absolutely. And they need, to, they need to see their stories being told in the media. And if you start doing that, they will, they will, they will, you know, they'll listen. I mean, people, people want to hear about their world and, and it, it, it actually makes perfect sense that if they're not hearing stories about their real lives, I mean, why should they pay attention to that? Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. So any journalists who might be listening to this, take note and uh, take a look at Christopher Martin's new book, No Longer Newsworthy, How the Mainstream Media Abandoned the Working Class. Well, Christopher, it was a pleasure talking with you. And uh, again, congratulations on your new book. Thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. That was Christopher Martin, author of the new book, No Longer Newsworthy, How the Mainstream Media Abandoned the Working Class. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on Chris's new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.